0: Awesome. So, um, so, hello and welcome. Very special guest, uh, Wendy. Uh, Wendy, I'll let you introduce yourself.
1: Um, I'm Wendy Moy, and I am the director of choral activities at Connecticut College. And I oversee the music ed program, and I am the co artistic director of Choral Synthesis Singers, a professional ensemble. And those are just two of many of the things that I do. So.
0: I have actually always wondered how you pronounce that, so that's good to know, Uh, even though I um, have ushered at many of your things. Yes, and uh, most importantly, you are also my oldest and wisest sister, so thank you for joining (laughs) me on the podcast.
1: My pleasure.
0: Yeah, I thought today we could chat just briefly about um, a little bit about your uh, history with music, so it sounds like from your introduction, you do a lot. Um, and I would love to trace kind of I, I feel like our family grew up with a lot of music, um, but I would love to hear from you firsthand a little bit about I guess the things you were involved in with music growing up, how you stuck with it um, let we'll 's start at the beginning, so
1: oh what, my goodness
0: I know <laughs> what kind of things did you how did you how did our family guide us into this your lifelong career for music
1: sure i'll i 'll outline it and then you can. You can follow up with anything that uh, I skip or miss, whatever. Um, um, I think mom started us on violin, at least me, at age four. Uh, So music training at an early age, I think, was very formative. Um, And I think um, I have memories of just singing to myself, too, and dancing and singing to records and stuff like that. And I remember... Going to like a Christmas Eve service when I was in kindergarten and wondering why I didn't wasn't able to why I wasn't up there singing literally with little angels up there and so I asked to join choir and so uh, something about that kind of grabbed my attention and I played violin all the way through high school and college and sang ever since that uh, introduction to choir at like five or six And sang in high school choir and junior high choir and then also participated in church choir, which I think was very formative in that it was a very nurturing environment and an environment that created a lot of community um, with like touring and overnight trips and all those things that really take it beyond just rehearsing and like performing for the community and creating lifelong relationships with uh, the people that I sang with and the people I learned Tender. so
0: that's terrific let's back up so sure. you started <laughs> violin. no that's, that's that's a great overview it's a good reminder for me too you started violin at four now was that your choice of instrument or was that something that mom like handed you the violin
1: oh um, i think that was mom i because she took violin lessons when she was young and so um so yeah, that was something that she started with suzuki violin and I don't remember choosing, I think it was her choice.
0: Gotcha. No. Uh, Cause certainly by the time I was four, uh, I was also not given an option since we had already bought, purchased a series of violins at that point. Um, right. so, um so we started at four, uh, which is terrific. And how? Long, and you still play the violin, is that correct?
1: I don't have my violin here with me in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it's actually back in in Washington state, Just because of packing and flying with instruments. I actually, unfortunately, had to make a conscious decision when I was doing my doctorate. Halfway through my doctorate, I had uh, I was running out of time. It was uh, in the day to pursue private voice or private violin. So finally, you know, in my late 30s, I made a conscious decision to actually stop performing it because of time. Not that I wouldn't, I don't, I do miss it. And I think uh, if I did have my violin, I would play purely just for me. Uh, I I play and demonstrate with my students and stuff when I'm teaching, but it's not a part of my active performance activities. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about voice now. So you briefly mentioned church choir. Was that your kind of first entry into vocal chorale music?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, yeah, starting in kindergarten, I think we were very fortunate to have a graded children's choir program, I think that's something that is hardly ever—it's uh, actually not supported very much um, or an active part of church choir music. And so, to have um, you know just a whole group of peers my own age learning to sing um, and learning some theory and vocal technique, and having the opportunity to learn music that's just specifically picked for that age group, and then having the opportunity to learn what it's like to like get up in front of people and sing. And I found that just to be a very great creative, as well as I think probably just a personal outlet. I, I felt a great connection to my voice. Um, and of course, loving to sing with other people. So I, it was mostly choral singing growing up. I didn't start um, solo voice training until like undergraduate. Yeah, schooling.
0: That's great. Were you, did you belong to multiple choirs while you were at church or?
1: Um, there was one choir at church and then every now and then I think we split off into like an all girls choir to do. And then, um, so there was a junior high choir and there was a high school choir. So I did each of those. And then I think like my, maybe my junior, junior year in high school, I think when there was a women's or a girls choir. and so. And then I also did jazz choir at high school.
0: Gotcha. Oh, jazz choir! I did not remember that. Yeah,
1: I did jazz choir. So, yeah, starting starting about eighth grade and maybe even seventh or eighth. So,
0: gotcha. And were you as also involved in like other musical aspects in the church at the time? Like, did you do handbells? Like, I. I did
1: handbells. I did handbells. Uh, I did always seven through twelve. So that was another ensemble making activity uh that I like to do and that kind of I, I mean w- what was very great about it it was also like it, w- it was a musical activity but also just I think I had a great uh community with me like there was just a lot of wonderful people my age that were active in handbells and singing so uh, there were great musicians as great as those great people and so we it was uh, as much as having a lot of fun as well as making great music so yeah handbells i totally forgot about that
0: i remember relating a story to um uh to allison just how involved christmas eve services were as a part of our family where i remember that i kind of always used to dread christmas eve because (laughs) it was such a long commitment because i remember like between the three of us and mom there there was like a children's service an early service like the midnight service, and like more or less, like we were at all of them.
1: Yes, I think because there was a children's service, youth service, an earlier service, a late service, and yeah, helping out or being active in all those things. Um, so, yeah.
0: I just remember it was such a long, <laughs> like it, a, it long a
1: long day night before long... <laughs> I
0: could open my presents.
1: That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Terrific. And so you, if I remember correctly, spoiler alert, you graduated from college from Seattle Pacific University, and then you started teaching. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I was very fortunate enough. I had a job before I graduated. Um, I got hired by the Edmonds School District and um, to teach at College Place Middle School, um, seventh and eighth grade choir and orchestra. It couldn't have been a more perfect fit. It was both my passion. I didn't have to give up both sides of um kind of my musical interests and um and actually stayed there for over 10 years um so yeah it was a great time
0: and what uh so you what kind of what would be a typical type of course or class that you would teach and what age ranges were you teaching there
1: so uh it was a school of 12 sorry 12 year olds and eight and 13 year olds the seventh and eighth grade and i taught a seventh grade orchestra and eighth grade orchestra um a seventh grade choir and eighth grade choir. Uh, some years we and then we added uh, a jazz choir um that met sometimes before or after school and we added different things as the year went on, the years went on and I've taught like guitar class, uh a learning through the arts class, a theater class, um, and all sorts of different things. We did chamber music, but mostly mostly the two things that I was hired for was orchestra and choir.
0: Gotcha. And so, you probably through your education, you ta- learn how to play or become very proficient in a lot of different instruments. Or is that more yes. a- okay? So, <laughs> yeah, it's if- part
1: of yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
0: So, if you had, if you, for some reason, had to give up the violin, so you could no longer play the more longer play the violin, um, or I guess if you had to choose, a, if you had to do it over again, and mm-hmm. you had to switch instruments, or you could travel back in time, and mom gave you a a range of instruments that you could choose from like knowing that you've already chosen the violin in this path like what would be Uh another instrument that you would have loved to spend quite a number of years playing
1: huh well after i started teaching i actually got to go back and take lessons on different things i i love the sound of the cello um but I also lo- had f- great fun playing bass. Now both those instruments are large, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I became very adept actually at putting a bass in my car. So I think maybe bass. I don't know. I don't know if my personality would have fit it at the time, but now it would. But like maybe the cello. I.
0: How do you fit? <laughs> How do you fit a bass to a Chevy? Like a Chevy Prism.
1: You um. Put the front seat down in the passenger side and you thread it through and you drive with like the top part sitting next to you in the passenger seat and it kind of is at an angle. But you could totally do that. You can also put a whole drum set in your trunk too. Not, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I did all of it at the same time. Uh-huh. But yes, you get very creative and it became a talking point when I was looking for a new car that a bass had to fit in there <laughs> and a whole drum set through its... I think car dealers thought I was yanking their chain, but I was serious. And so, yep. Yeah. I mean, I got his haul stuff in there.
0: <laughs> so I guess we can fast forward again. So you decided uh, to go back to school, right? Um, yeah. And you went to blankety blank on the East coast.
1: <laughs> I went to Westminster choir college um, in Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I got my master's in music education. Um, I well, two reasons. One, uh, I, I kind of think is Prince. I had this beautiful image in my mind of Princeton because we would grow up and visit family there during the summer. Um, but I also started to find out that uh, Westminster Choir College was this unique entity in which they taught, you know, was fo- solely focused on singing and then also organ playing and stuff but um what was wonderful was that I could still teach during the academic year and then I would fly out to Princeton for like six to eight weeks and do intense school work with with these people who have become lifelong friends actually um and get an amazing degree something that was so it was a master's in music education with a focus in choral music and
0: but that was not the end of your journey of your education. No, right?
1: no. And everything's always kind of been organic. Like I didn't ever think that I was going to be a teacher. Actually, I think I might have said at one point, I was never was going to be a teacher. <laughs> I remember at a thanks, you know, at Thanksgiving, I made the decision I was going to apply for doctoral programs, which is actually way too late to be thinking about that. Uh, so I had like one or two weeks to turn in my applications <laughs> and um, yeah, because they're due like December 1st or December 15th. And so mm-hmm. basically I had a week, It's not something I recommend prepare for uh, applying to your doctorate in one week, deciding on the University of Washington for my doctorate in choral conducting started to wean off my teaching and went part time and then eventually made kind of that break of uh, I'm no longer teaching middle school or high school at the same time as doing my doctorate. It was too much and then went full time doctorate. So, yeah.
0: Right. I remember sitting in, I think, as you as you formally defended your thesis. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, you were there. That was, yeah. So um, you have to do a topics exam, which is kind of like your oral exam. And then uh, you. I think you were there for the defense of my dissertation. Yeah, which I had already also had been teaching for two years. <laughs> Three years, actually, at the college level. I mean, unfortunately, this is kind of common. Uh, you finish your coursework and then you have to work on your 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 document and uh, I was very fortunate to get a job right away at Tacoma Community College um, which was a one-year teaching position and then got hired at Connecticut College and uh, really enjoyed teaching but then you know they tell you oh you need remember remember that document you were supposed to finish so, uh, <laughs> so then, <laughs> uh, you want to keep your job you need to finish your document and so yeah so my second year of of teaching uh, at Connecticut College. I uh, finished my document, flew out and defended it and did some edits and um, everything. and was done in December of 2014, I think. So, yeah.
0: Wow. And if you could briefly, I mean, as briefly as one can, as as your as, as as an academic can um, quickly, you worked a little bit with the Seattle Men's Court, pretty extensively with Seattle Men's Corps for for your your dissertation. I
1: did, I did. Uh, my dissertation uh, was um, an ethnographic study, so um, the whole purpose is spending a long uh, in-depth time getting to know a certain group of people, um, um, and bounded by a kind of a certain culture. So I spent three years while I was um, at the University of Washington uh, observing rehearsals and concerts and activities and retreats of the Seattle Men's Chorus. Uh, and they're the largest game men's chorus in the world and the largest uh, community chorus in North America when they um, when they combine with the Seattle Women's Chorus. Um, I didn't even know that they held both those those kind of distinctions when I lived in Seattle, I knew they were great, but those were the two things that made them distinctive. Um, And what I was curious about was that one, when you go to a concert of them, like they are so happy and they're so passionate about what they do. And I think um, after having been in um, teaching for so long, and then also being in academia, which is great, you don't get to see that passion a lot all the time. And also that passion connected with a sense of community. Um, so I was interested in finding out kind of what, maybe kind of like, you know, to put it very generally, their secret, you know, what what makes them successful. Um, they're not just known as a gay men's chorus, but they're known as kind of, um, they're like something very special to the Seattle community. Like, you know, they're a tradition at Christmas, um, the holiday season, um, kind of a treasure. And so I spent three years um, kind of looking at the culture of that community and found out that a lot of it is, you know, they see their the chorus as a chosen family, um, the strength and the care of their artistic director holds that all together. And then looking at it from another point of view that there's a system of social capital that they've developed, um, you know, between members with the conductor and um, also with their volunteers in the greater Seattle community. So um, and I'm still um, connected with them, still working on that research to get it published, as well as um, looking at all the works that they've commissioned over the past 35 years, which is, um, which means, you know, they've hired composers to to write works just for them and i'm interested in seeing what are the significant works and how it has shaped kind of the community and the lives of the members that sang in the group and also the community because they came about in the height of the hiv aids crisis um, so that's my continuing research with the seattle men's chorus
0: that's terrific and i that's fascinating to me when you think about i'm sure you came across this in your research i have not your dissertation um i just in terms of like how these communities form around music and particularly when you think of chorales traditionally you think of uh, uh, a religious tradition right where whereas right. Uh, even back then that that gay community didn't have perhaps that home um so yeah, that's fascinating yeah. me, about like how, how music brings us together um uh so wrapping up so you mentioned the very beginning about um choral synthesis tell me a little mm-hmm. bit more about that
1: um, um, when I was getting my doctorate, um, I made fast friends with, um, Jeremiah Selvey, who is my colleague in my cohort at the University of Washington. And actually, um, he's not the only great friend that came out of that cohort. I've got lifelong friends and that's, what's great. Uh, something I didn't expect that something was great that came out of going to get my doctorate is that you you spend so much time together, uh, you end up talking about things beyond class, you know, like, um, you know, and when you're getting your doctorate, you're always thinking about what is my contribution to the field? Uh, what would I like to see change in the field? You know, that's the difference between, you know, doing an undergraduate degree and, and, and graduate is that you're trying to shape what's to come. Um, and so we would, uh, Jeremiah and I would talk about, you know, we should bring people together to have these same questions, to have our own summit. So that actually came out of that. And then, you know, when you have this idea, then you realize all the different things that have to happen when you're um, trying to bring a bunch of people, which is, you know, you, know, you need funding to, to put on a conference. Well, if you need funding, you need an organization. <laughs> so um, in my na- naivete, I was like, oh, we'll just put together our own nonprofit uh, organization of which your friend Forrest helped us with and, uh, you know, I was checking out library books um, from UW on how to form your own, own non-profit and uh, there was hardly any hesitation like, yes, we should do this and um, to um, bring kind of the disparate different um, groups together in the choral world, you know, Jeremiah um, taught internationally, he's done a lot of church music and I did a lot of education things and we both were doing a degree in conducting and we just saw that we had all these feet and all these different worlds and everyone was talking about all the different problems in choral music but nobody was talking to each other and that we realized to be sustainable and to keep going forward as an art we all needed to talk to each summit actually never happened <laughs> <laughs> in our in our in our um, in its original conception. Um, but we did presentations. We continue to do presentations at different conferences. We have one coming up on Thursday in Portland, Oregon, um, talking about social consciousness and new music. Um, and one of the projects that came out of um, um, putting together a nonprofit was Choral Synthesis Singers, because um, we realized, you know, we can't just talk about this. We need to. We need to actually discover what works. Be a model out there. We have to kind of put our you know, we'd be actively doing what we say we should be doing. So uh, we put together a professional choir. Um, our f- um, Let's see. This is twenty, this is 2018, right? I think our first project was in 2016. Uh, I'm already thinking of 2019, so I have to make sure that I say that you're right. Um, and we did Empowering Silence Voices concert in Seattle. All of it was based on new music um, put up from a um we put out a call for scores for new music. Music that had never been premiered um, or hadn't been premiered everywhere. And then so we did a first project, um, which went from everything from like flying everybody in from across the United States and using local singers and auditioning via Skype, getting permission from composers from around the world. Um, so we did, we, we auditioned and put together this ensemble for the first concert. We realized we had, um enough music from that one call to do empowering silence voices too so we did a second iteration last year and also went on tour around washington state uh, and then finished in um recording in the studio for two days and we are wrapping up editing right now on that and that should um be released this year out on the centaur records label um so with that you know hoping to find a model um that honors also the singers we wanted um we wanted um there's not many ways for singers to become professionally um to go professional full-time unless they are Opera singers, and even then, opera singers are not uh, part of one company all the time. It's not like you know, oh, I play with the Seattle Symphony, and I, you know, that's my job, and I might freelance. There's not as many opportunities um, for choral singers, and so wanted to honor their work, and that's why we went fully professional. Um, So trying to be a model for that, and then also we bring our composers into the conversation. Um, we bring them into the rehearsal. We Skype them in. Um, we do reading sessions. We'll do one next week in Santa Monica to help promote new music on social consciousness. Um, and our next project is a world premiere of a, of a piece we commissioned Commissioned Stephen Serpa uh, to write Um a new f- full-length oratorio on the issue of HIV-AIDS, but not just that issue, but the relationships and the stigma around having HIV-AIDS in this, at this time.
0: I guess uh, just two more quick questions would be, one would be something that I hear a lot, um, just in my perspective in education it's really a strong emphasis on the STEM fields, you know, um, science, uh-huh. technology, edu- um, engineering, mathematics. What do you say as someone has, who has been <laughs> so heavily involved in music education, why music should, why is music education so still important, both at the, at all different levels of, of education?
1: Ah, oh, okay. In a nutshell, I'll try to. So one, it brings, okay. Just on a purely aesthetic music brings us joy, you know, I think of, um, you know, our two nieces and (laughs) your son, like music just brings joy, Um, from an educational perspective, um, arts are not a peripheral, like you learn so many things from the arts, and actually Google and Microsoft just came out with this study that like, actually the people that are the most successful um, at their companies, our students who are in the liberal arts because they get to think that we now need students who think and people who think creatively and problem solve because we can now have all this information at our fingertips um, all the time. It's what we do with it. Um, So I think in this day and age of just STEM, we need to be thinking about the acronym STEAM. So um, having a holistic education that it's not just science and technology and engineering, which I think are very, very important. Like I excelled in all those, and I still chose music. So, there is sort of a stigma that is still around, like majoring in the arts. You know, especially monetarily, parents want their kids to be successful. And we're just looking at that. You know, look at Google, look at Microsoft. We we need people who are uh, competent and problem solvers, and creative, and I think. As human beings, um, empathetic to one another, so that's <laughs> that's my response to why you should keep the arts central um, in your life and in education.
0: Thank you. That is a terrific answer. I actually have not heard of the acronym STEAM before, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's because I'm just on one side of the conversation. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I guess my uh, last uh, question for you would be if people wanted to find out more about chorosynthesis or your dissertation, what's the best way to follow you or keep track of that?
1: Great, Uh, Matt. You can follow chorosynthesis on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we have a website, www.chorosynthesis.org. If you'd like to know more about my research and uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) www.wendymoy.com. I always have to spell it. Um, so, and I love talking to people about all these things. And so, um, I guess, thank you for, for listening and, um, feel free to drop an email or, um, Facebook message or whatever to, um, if you have any questions.
0: Terrific. Well, I will formally click stop on this podcast so we can talk family, which the podcast does not need to listen to.